Well, good morning. It is a, a privilege to be with you, and I, I have a sense it really started last night, preaching in the, the Saturday night service and this morning, just of the amazing gift we have to do what we're doing, um, the sense that, that we can gather freely, uh, be among family and friends, and for me it's a pleasure, even though I'm only here once in a while, to get to know and to have known many of you in the past, and, and just the pleasure it is to be together uh, as a people who have a strong bond in Christ. Uh, the, um, the reality, we've got sound systems that work so well and projection that works and instruments and people to help us. And, and uh, I was just in Myanmar and uh, one of the things I was struck by is just how easily we have access to translations that make sense to us. Um, apparently most people, it formerly was called Burma, but most of the people have access to translations that are in their second language, not in their first language, in the second language. And that's a translation that Adoniram Judson had done almost 200 years ago. Um, and so the freedom that we have and so many resources and in all of this also the presence of God by his spirit to be a part of what we do, to enable what we do, and I'm just so thankful. And so many of these things I take for granted, but I, I just have a sense that God has given us so much, um, and so I want to thank him and ask for his blessing on this time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've given us, and it's more than, than we realize, and it's more than we usually take the time to express. But I do thank you for uh, a comfortable place to be able to gather where there's good sound so we can hear and, and uh, good leadership so that we can worship uh, words of songs that people have written that, that express your faithfulness, your goodness. Uh, I thank you for the, the word that people have worked so hard and sacrificed so much to protect for us and have worked to translate so we can understand it, and it's available to us so easily. Most of all, I thank you for your spirit who is with us to enable us to, to be in your presence, to have you indwell us. I thank you for your son and his sacrifice that we might be in your presence. Thank you for drawing us together in your presence today. Father, I just pray that you would be at work in each of our hearts that your spirit would be teaching, would be drawing us to yourself, would be communicating with us, that we might enjoy fellowship with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, recent months, it's really helped me to be spending some more time just really trying to read the Psalms um, in a in a way that often I don't read the Bible. And I don't know if this happens to any of you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, I start to read for information. Right, I read the Bible to look for theology. What is this teaching us about God and what is this teaching us about us? And, and I, don't get me wrong, I, I really love theology and I think it's great for us to be trying to say, what is God teaching us? Um, but it's kind of like years ago before my wife and I were married, I lived out in California, she lived back here and we wrote letters uh, basically every day. And I'll tell you, I never hated post office holidays as much as I did then, right? Go to the mailbox, no letter, oh, it's another holiday. Why is there no letter? I didn't read her letters for information. I mean, I did. I mean, I wanted to know what was happening, but I wanted to hear her heart, right? I, I, I wanted to, to, you know, we didn't call, we called once a week because in those days it was expensive and we couldn't do Skype and all these things that, you know, it's so easy now. But I needed to, to read to hear her. And I realize often when I read the Bible, I read the Bible to get information, right? I read to get another story. I read to get something, and that's good. But reading the Psalms has been very good for me to read, to hear God, right? To, to, to hear his heart and, and to, to listen. And so that's been really good, but I have to confess sometimes 
Reading the Psalms is a challenge because sometimes the psalmist talked about wonderful things that when I look at life, I don't always see it. I mean, sometimes I do, but sometimes I look at it and I say, but where does that really happen? So a simple example. Psalm 103, a wonderful psalm of praise to God of thanksgiving. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is in within, within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins and he heals all our diseases. And I do okay until I get to that line. And I say, well, does he really? Right? I mean, I, I'm, you know, I have close friends, strong Christians, whose family is just being torn apart by disease that goes on for years. And I say, okay, it's great to say that God heals all our diseases, but sometimes that's not what I see. Sometimes there's something different going on. Sometimes it's wonderful to hear the miraculous God changed the situation and a disease is gone, maybe over time, maybe instantly. It's wonderful to hear that. Sometimes it's hard for me to hear those stories because I say, but why not here? Psalm 5 says, God surrounds the righteous with his favor like a shield. I love that image, right? So this, the shield that goes around us that just protects us with his favor. But frankly, sometimes I encounter situations either in my life or other people's life where it seems like there are holes in God's shield, right? There's a sense of them being attacked, of trial that doesn't seem to have an explanation and it doesn't seem to go away. Philippians tells us that you know, we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, which requests be made known to God. And what will happen, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. And as I struggle with friends through things, sometimes it seems that peace is not nearly as accessible as it seems like it ought to be given that promise, right? That the struggle for peace is a hard one, that we, that we keep after it, and anxiety is a tough thing to deal with. And people in faith are saying, God, I want to believe this, but sometimes it seems like your promises aren't happening, that there's a disconnect, right? And, and sometimes it's for myself, sometimes it's when I talk with other people, what do I say? when it seems like God's promises aren't happening. And the hardest time for me to do it is talking face-to-face with somebody who says, I'm going through a really hard time and I can't find God in this. I, I mean, I know he's there, I know the promises, but it's not what I'm experiencing. What do I say? What do I say to my kids when that's what we encounter? And, and somebody challenged me not long ago, I need to do a better job of pastoring, of, of uh, leading my own soul. You see, often, for me, uh, times of, of uncontrolled thinking happens at night when I'm just laying in bed and all these thoughts go through my mind. And often I do a really good job at listening to myself and I was challenged that I ought to start talking to myself too. Right? Sometimes it's just, what does my soul want to say? What does it want to say? And I just keep rehearsing that. I need to tell my soul things. Well, the question is, what should I tell my soul? When God's promises seem not to be materialized in my life, he says it, but that's not what I'm seeing. It's a profound question. To explore that this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 11. Really encourage you to grab a Bible if you want to grab the, the one in the, the pew in front of you. It's on page 1007, Hebrews 11. But to set this up, I want you to understand a little bit about the people to whom this letter is written. It seems that the letter of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who uh, probably were first or second generation Christians, that they had been Jewish, but they've become Christian. Maybe they themselves were the first in their families, or maybe they're people who grew up where their parents were the first in the family. 
but these are people who had come out of Judaism, came into Christianity, and it seems that they came in with great enthusiasm. And then things didn't quite pan out the way they thought. Right? Life was more challenging than they thought it, would, that it ought to be, and they were tempted to go back. Right? They, they thought, well, maybe Judaism wasn't so bad after all. I mean, God was at work in this, and, and it's so meaningful. It's a meaningful part of our lives. And you know, what we're told in Christianity, we don't always see it. And so many of them were tempted to return to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews says to the people, Christianity is far superior to Judaism in the sense that Christianity is the fulfillment of what Judaism was. Judaism is like the shadow that, that, that was falling backwards from the real thing, right? The real thing is here, so don't go back to the shadow. Take the real thing. And the writer says, you know, Moses was a really big deal, and he was. God used him mightily, and he instituted so much of what Judaism was. He says, Jesus is far superior to Moses. You don't want to go back to Moses. He was good, but he served his purpose. Now hold on to Jesus. From a Jewish perspective, the angels were very dominant in terms of understanding how the the first covenant came. And so they're very impressed with thinking about the angels and the role they played. The writer says, Jesus is far superior to the angels. You want to hold on to Jesus. In fact, he says, everything there is, is subjected to Jesus Christ. You want to hold on to him. But then he says in Hebrews 2.8, he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? So he says, I understand your problem. Here we've been told Jesus has total control over everything. But we're not seeing it. Right? We're told that he has total control. And yet, we look at the world and we say it doesn't look like he has total control. In their world, it was probably Rome. It was probably uh, Jews who rejected them. It was probably others who attacked them. It was probably just life itself that often was a great challenge. And, And they said, if Jesus is in total control, why are we experiencing what we're experiencing? And we see it to be true again today. I mean, it is true that faith very often doesn't align with what we see kind of the definition of faith, right? Faith is what doesn't fit with what we see. And and so we experience it in lots of ways. We experience it, as I mentioned before, in terms of disease. Uh, You know, people go through tremendous hardship in faith, go through bankruptcy and homelessness and and global threats of terror and, and divorce and all sorts of awful things that people encounter that I see and I try to understand why the disconnect Why is it that these awful things seem to happen when we say that Jesus has total control, complete sovereignty, he can do whatever he wants, and yet we see this. And so what the writer says is in order to be a Christian and to stay a Christian, you have to have faith. You've got to accept some things that you're told are true, even though you look at the world and it doesn't look like it. And so here's Hebrews 11. Starting the first verse, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. So stop there for a second. He says, here's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of something you hope for, but you don't see it yet. Right? It's the conviction that something is true that you can't see. And, and that's what faith is. It's being told, this is the way things are, 
but I can't prove it to you. I can't point to it right now, but God has revealed it, and faith accepts it because God has revealed it. And the writer says, this is what God always honored. God always honored people who had faith. And what that means, again, is that they had an assurance of what God said is true, even though when they looked at the world, it didn't look like it. Right? And so now he gives many examples. The first one, verse three, he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now I'm convinced that as the world came to be what it is today, there are all sorts of natural, physical mechanisms that were part of it. I don't think that's what the writer is saying. He's not saying that there were no natural means of, of what got here. He says, ultimately, God did it. Now, when we try to understand what happens, often we do look at evidence of geology and, and all sorts of things to try to understand what happens. The writer says the most critical part of that whole picture is this. Ultimately, God is completely responsible for what we have. Right? By his word, he did it. And that's something you'll never find in the geological record. Right? You can't find evidence that God did it. All sorts of evidence, and it's good to wrestle with it, but ultimately, the thing we know about the world is that God did it by his word. And the only way we know that is by his word. Right? We can't collect evidence that, that, that covers that. That's something for us to know it. We have to accept his revelation of it. And so we know that by faith. So then he goes on and talks about these two, uh, these two men of old, verse four, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what the writer does is he talks about these two men, Abel and Enoch, both managed to get past death. Abel by dying, but still having a voice after death. And Enoch by sidestepping death. Sounds like a good plan to me, right? I'd like to sign up for that if, if I've got a choice. Both of them were able to escape the bounds that we all know are true. And that is, we're going to die. Right? That we can observe. Right? That we can collect data and say, there's a death, and at death, there's no stepping back. Now, some people have written books saying, I experienced life after death, and I came back to tell you about it. I don't know what to make of them. Confess being rather skeptical of the whole thing. But even if any of those were true, it's still not direct evidence. It's somebody telling me what they think happened and their interpretation of it. We just don't have direct evidence of life after death. What we have evidence of is people die, every one of us, and will die once, and then it's over. That's what we have direct evidence of. Life past death, that takes faith, right? And Abel and Enoch both experienced going past, past that bound by faith because we can't get evidence of it, but they experienced it by faith. And so verse six, the writer then gives us, I think, a restatement of the first two verses in some sense. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So he says, in order to be a Christian, in order to please God, I have to have faith. You can't do this thing without faith. Direct evidence, seeing things is never gonna be enough. Why? Because he says there are two things you have to believe. You have to believe that God exists. 
Now, I'm convinced they're very good arguments for the existence of God. But at the end of the day, they're all arguments. They're philosophical arguments. You can't collect evidence that says, right here, see, that, that was God, right? I can see that. That's proof. I can do this experiment and say God's right there. We'll just never be able to do that. Proof is never the issue, never the ultimate issue. It's good to wrestle for proof, but it never will be the ultimate issue. Ultimately, the writer says we have to have faith that God is really there because God has told us he is. But the second part I find even more challenging, and that is that we have to believe that God rewards those who seek him. That's hard to collect evidence for, right? Now, being at the university, I'd love to set up an experiment. Let's just get the general population, randomly select people, say, are you seeking God or no? We're gonna watch you for a year or five years or 10 years and say whose lives are better, right? My guess is what we're gonna find is noise. It's just hard to tell by watching somebody's life. Is God blessing this person? Is God rewarding this person, right? Psalm 73 is this great psalm that says, I have been trying to fear God, and I'm trying to follow him, and my life is challenging, and I don't get it. And he says, I look across the fence at the people who flaunt the fact that they don't trust God, and their life is good, and it's nice, and I like that life. And he stands over in here, and he says, I'm jealous of that person, right? And, and often we encounter this, that I, I would love to collect evidence that says, if you become a Christian, life's going to get better. But we don't have that evidence. We have to take it on faith. God says, I'm going to reward those who seek me. And to accept that, we have to say, okay, God, you've said it. I'll accept your word that it is true because I can't prove that. There are enough times that people I, I just think are just amazing in their faith and life is a struggle. And people who just seem to not care at all about faith or say, I know that there is no God and I don't care if there is and their life just looks so easy, <laughs> right? I've got to take it on faith. God says, I reward those who seek me. And so, again, he's saying, you have to have faith because what you see is never what it's really all about. There's something more going on. We have to accept God's revelation to us. So now he goes on to talk about Abraham. So, uh, no, next, Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So as I read Genesis understanding Noah, it's, the, the chronology is not all perfectly clear to me, but it does seem that God told Noah about the flood about 120 years before it happened. 120 years. God says, hey, Noah, there's gonna be this cataclysmic flood. You'd better build a boat or you're dying. Noah doesn't have any direct evidence of this, right? There's not a farmer's almanac that says every 300 years there's gonna be a cataclysmic flood and you, know, you can't say the climate is changing and we can predict that this, there was no evidence anywhere that said this was true. Just the fact that God revealed it. And Noah says, okay, I'll build the ark that you told me about. And then he goes to his neighbors and said, folks, God's told me this, this thing is coming. And they say, we don't see any evidence. We don't have floods like that. Nobody in our history has ever talked about anything like that. There's no evidence for this. Why would you believe it? And by his faith, Noah was saved and his family, and in effect, the world was condemned because they wouldn't believe what God had said. They said, there's no evidence for that. Noah said, but God said it. And the writer says it takes faith. Noah, by his faith, saved his family. 
and by their lack of faith, the rest of the people were condemned. So then Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So God goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to move. I'm not going to tell you exactly where, but I'll take care of that. Right? No travel brochures. There's no way to you know, read TripAdvisor and people before said, here are the comments about what it's like. You know, no way to look ahead and say what's coming. It's just God said it's the thing to do. So you do it. So Abraham did. He went out to a place. He didn't know where he was going. He was told he was going to receive an inheritance. Right? Well, that means you have to have a relative who owns something who's going to die and give it to you. He didn't have any relatives there. I mean, this didn't make sense. But God said, this is where to go. I'm going to give it to you. Will you go? And you don't have any direct evidence of it, but will you trust my word? And he did. And it says that he lived as an alien, as a foreigner, in the land of promise. This is his land, God said. But he didn't own it. He lived in a tent, and I don't think this is literally making a point of him living in tents versus wanting a city that you know, is built up with walls and stones and whatever they were going to build it with. The point was that he was a temporary dweller in the land that God said was going to be his forever. So he was looking forward to the time when this would be his dwelling place forever, but he lived there just believing that because he didn't have that. He didn't have the deed that says, this is mine. He was a visitor. And he and his sons lived there as visitors, living, waiting, not having received it yet, but God says it, so they believed it. And so then verse 11, looking at Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand, by the seashore. By faith, Sarah. Now you know the story, right? Sarah was told, hey Sarah, I know you never could have kids. I know you're too old to have kids, but you're going to have a son a year from now. And Sarah says, ha, not a chance, right? Her response was, this doesn't make any sense. All the evidence says this can't happen. And she laughs. And the angel says, you laughed at this. And she, oh no, no, I didn't laugh, right? And so add to lack of faith, lying. But eventually... (laughs) We're told by the writer of Hebrews, she believed. Eventually she said, okay, this runs against all the evidence that I can see, but God said it, so I'll believe it, right? And by her faith, by her willing to accept God's revelation, even though she couldn't see it yet, he says, they were able to have a son, Isaac. And so, and I love, wouldn't you like to have this description of you in the Bible? Abraham is good as dead, right? <laughs> he's, he's all washed up, he's all, but Through this, he has a son. And through this, he has the possibility of having all these descendants that before he couldn't even have one. And now this is a possibility. All these people had faith. They were willing to accept God's revelation even when they couldn't yet see it. And he says, that's essential. You can't be a Christian without this. You can't be a follower of God. You can't please him without faith. Because there is a profound disconnect very often between what God tells us and what we see. And so then, the writer actually makes it a little bit harder for us. Verse 13. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So he says all these great people that God commended, they all died in faith. It's not like they lost faith and that's why they died. They died in faith without having received the promises. And I say to the writer, you're not making this any easier for these Jewish Christians to stay Christian, right? It's, where is this? How, how, does it, how is it that people are dying in faith without having received the promises? And I puzzle a little bit because it seems like Noah did receive a very important promise, right? He and his family lived through the flood. (laughs) That was a good thing. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. That was a wonderful thing. He's not saying they didn't receive any promises. They didn't receive the ultimate things promised, right? Clearly with Abraham, he never received the land as his own possession. He did not have descendants that you couldn't count. He, He did not see how his family would bless the whole world. That would come but he hadn't received it yet. But for all of them, what God was really intending for them wasn't fully realized when they died, right? Because the fulfillment was gonna happen later, at, at a later time, but here's what they did. They saw these promises and welcomed them. They greeted them from a distance, and I love that expression, right? So it, it's, it's like the promise is wandering by long ways away, right? As a, as a foreigner, it doesn't belong here, but we say, I'm gonna make it at home here. This is a promise that doesn't fit here, but I'm gonna welcome it here because it's true. I'm gonna bring it in and welcome it and say, this promise is at home here even though it's like a stranger a long ways off. I'm gonna provide a home for that promise. And it says, along these lines, he says that you know, they, were, they acknowledged, these people acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were strangers and exiles. Um, so when I was in Myanmar, I, I experienced a bit of this, of what it's like to be away from home. I, you know, the people, all the people that I really love were a long ways away. Now, when Adoniram Judson went 200 years ago, he didn't quite have the communication that we have today. I was able to Skype home basically every day. My roommate was watching Major League Baseball over the internet. I mean, it just wasn't quite the same as what it was like 200 years ago. Nevertheless, I was very conscious that the people I loved weren't there. And I couldn't help them the way I wanted to help them. When there were things that needed to be done here, I couldn't do them, right? That reminded me, I'm not at home. But the language reminded me I wasn't at home. The culture, the ways of interacting, the food, there were so many things that just said to me, you're not at home. When I would walk down the street and realize I'm the only one with white skin, I'm taller than almost everybody else, and I'm sticking out like a sore thumb, I realized I'm not at home gotten to know some, uh, some people connected with MSU who are here from other countries. And for them, uh, they live very regularly the experience they're not at home. And for me, the most profound one is when people don't have permanent residency here. They're reminded pretty regularly, you can't stay here past some deadline. And you can't choose that, right? You don't ultimately belong here because we're going to tell you when you have to leave, right? And that's a very strong statement that says you're not at home. Right? That's what these guys said. They said, 
we aren't actually at home here. We're foreigners. This is what Abraham said. I'm a foreigner in my own land. They all said, this isn't ultimately home. We're strangers. We're foreigners here. And they go on to say, for people who speak this, thus make it clear, they're seeking a homeland because they could have gone back. So I'm convinced that the image here, for the people of Israel, they lived in Egypt and, and they were slaves in Egypt, right? And it was a horrible time. And so they were longing for deliverance. And so Moses comes and leads them out into the wilderness and they get out of Egypt and they're no longer slaves. And then they complain. And I used to have zero sympathy for these people who would complain. God's doing amazing work. He gives you manna and miraculous water and all these things and you're standing there complaining. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to go down into the Negev, into the southern area where they were. I stopped complaining about them. It's an awful place. And to think of you know, hundreds of thousands of people out here for years and there's basically no source of water. It's extremely cold in the winter. It's horribly hot in the summer. And they lived there. I'd be dreaming of Egypt too, <laughs> right? And they literally did say, hey, could we go back? Maybe we could go back because that was a nicer place to be, right? So they were tempted to look back and say that was easier. But no, what these people of faith did is they looked forward, They didn't say, oh, let's live here. They didn't say, let's go back. It was easier there. They they kept saying, no, we're not home yet. There's a promise that God hasn't given us yet. We're looking toward that. These people were all looking forward, not planted in where they were and not wanting to go backwards. They could have done that, he says, but, but they didn't want to do that. They were seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. Now, I don't think they were explicitly trying to leave earth. There's been a lot of talk about this recently, that earth is a good place and we're meant to be in a physical place and we probably will be forever. But but take a chronology of the earth that you go back to, to the Garden of Eden. This is a perfect place, right? It's a perfect physical place. Adam and Eve... This, everything was right, no disease, no death, no conflict, fellowship with God that was free and open. It was a perfect place on earth. And then sin comes, and all of a sudden, a different set of rules are at play. Now death reigns, decay reigns, conflict is a given, sin abounds, right? And, and Satan has tremendous power. And so we entered this age where it's the same place, but something's profoundly wrong. And then when Jesus came, he instituted a new kingdom. And and he really did. He says, the kingdom of God is among you, but it's still a kingdom that's not fully at home, right? There still is a a battle going on with, with, with spiritual forces, that there's a prince of the power of the air that is aligned against God and his kingdom. So the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully realized. But someday with the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth, it will be fully realized in this place. Right? So we went from having a perfect earth where God's ways were always followed and this was his kingdom on earth to the decay and the destruction and rebellion to the beginnings of the kingdom on earth. And we pray may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's not yet done that way. But someday it will. And so this is what they were looking for. Not for an escape from earth but for a time wherever it happens to be that God's ways would be completely followed that sin and death and destruction and decay all would be gone forever. That's what they were looking toward, right? They didn't get confused and think this is really our home. We're temporary here, but we're looking forward to what's coming. And so he says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. So in English, we do this sometimes where we we say something positive by negating the negative. 
sounds complex. The basic idea is every now and then I'll say, well, that wasn't bad, right? Well, what does that mean when we say that wasn't bad? What we really mean is that was good. We're not just saying it wasn't bad. We're actually saying that was quite good, right? And, and so I think the Ten Commandments is this way, right? It says, you shall not murder. I don't think it's merely saying if you don't murder anybody, you're off the hook, right? And it's not just saying don't murder. It's saying the positive, you should pursue life, Right? It's negating the negative to say something positive. So here, I'm convinced when it says God is not ashamed to be called their God, what it's saying is God is proud of these people. Right? He says, they get it. They know what I'm doing because God says that's exactly my plan. Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you that'll be perfect, that'll be a wonderful place. And these are people who are looking toward that place. They keep looking there and God says, that's great that they're thinking that because that's my plan. I'm preparing a future place. It's not right here, right now. God is bringing his kingdom, and we see a lot of evidence of it, but it's not fully established yet. And it won't be until Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom, and it will then be the city with foundations. Then it will be home. The reality is that to live by faith is to live according to a kingdom that isn't yet here, not fully. It's to live by faith in the promises of God, even though we continue to live as aliens and strangers, like we continue to live as people who aren't really at home. We believe what God says, even though it's hard to find evidence for it sometimes, because this isn't fully it. We're looking to the future. So when we look around and we say, wait a minute, this isn't quite what it ought to be. There's evil forces at play that just don't seem to be fully controlled. What's going on? Well, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is about the prophet Elisha, And Elisha had made the king of Aram very angry. It's a wonderful thing that he did. I mean, we worry about security leaks and what all is happening with everything. So the king of Aram would tell secrets to his generals. And Elisha would be telling the king of Israel what those secrets were. Oh, this made the king angry. I mean, he's going around, who's 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 letting the secrets out? Who's letting stuff out? And he said, none of us are doing it. Elisha knows whatever you say whenever you say it. King hated him, so he sent his armies to capture presumably to kill Elisha. So one day, Elisha's servant gets up, presumably to collect firewood or something like that. He looks out, and imagine looking out all around us, our foreign armies who are here to kill us, and they've got all the best weapons that are available to them for the day, right? And the the servant gets up and says, we're done. I mean, we're gonna be killed. We have no option to get out of here. Elisha, what are we gonna do? And Elisha says, don't worry. Why are you so afraid? The ones who are with us are much greater than the ones who are with them. And you know, the servant's looking around and trying to count past two. <laughs> There's only two of us. How could there be more of us? Elisha prays and says, God, open his eyes so he could see. And the servant looks out and surrounding the foreign enemies, the foreign armies, are the chariots, and fire, uh, the chariots of fire of God. Right? These were always there. And Elisha, by faith, could see them. He could see that the armies of God vastly outnumber and outpower the enemies that we can see, right? And this is what the, the, these, these people of faith could see. They said, I look around at the world and I see the foreign armies aligned against me. But by the eyes of faith, I know that the armies of God are far greater and they're there right now. I just can't see them. And that's what these people could see by the eyes of faith. Often, we don't have direct evidence of those armies of God, but they're there. 
and by faith we accept it. One of the challenging stories for me in thinking about people and experiences and uh, story of a family that was split up by World War II and uh, a young couple with a son and the husband, the father, is sent off to battle and no more word from him. And years go by, right? Years go by and it's, is he dead? Is he captured? What's happened? And so this, this wife is at, at home with a, a young son trying to figure out how do I live life when I don't know if my husband's dead or alive. I don't know if he'll ever come home. I, I don't know what to do about it. And yet I have a son here that I need to love and I need to give him a home. And we need to have some sort of joy at times and, and yet there's this deep ache that the one I love, I don't even know if he's there. And, and perhaps there's at some point there's indication, yes, he's alive we think, but we don't know. We don't know how it's going to go. And this, this, this challenging hope against hope, is it for real? And it's fascinating to me that Jesus uses images very much like that to describe our waiting for Jesus' return, right? It's like a bride waiting, saying, is, is the bridegroom going to come? Is he actually going to show up, right? And as a kid, we used to sing uh, that old song, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, keep me burning until the break of day. And And as a kid, I had no idea. I just thought this was a funny song that we could make rounds with and that type of thing. But it's a profound question of will I have enough endurance to wait for my Savior to return because I don't know how long it's going to take and I don't have any direct news as to when it's going to be, right? And this is the challenge of faith that says we're not home yet. We're waiting for one to come back, right? We're waiting for Christ and yet we don't know when it's going to be. And people of faith continue to wait. And some lose faith and give up and say, well, maybe it just isn't true, as these Hebrew Christians were tempted to do. We have to have faith in that which we're told, even though we don't have direct evidence of it. So a mistake that I make is I start to think about the world as if I were at home. Right? I start to think about as if this really were my home and, and things ought to be the right way, that God ought to be healing all these diseases. Right? He ought to do it now. And people couldn't figure out why isn't Jesus defending his kingdom? He says, I got armies out there, the chariots of fire, but I'm not using them now. Why? Because this isn't my kingdom here and now. I'm not defending this plot of territory. I'm defending the future order. Right? There's something very different at play. And so I get confused. So I, when I was um, younger, I used to like to do magic tricks. And sorry, I'm not going to do any this morning. I'm not good at it. But one of the things I love about magic is misdirection. Right? So what do you do as a magician? What you do is you move your hand, and I look at my hand, and I get you all looking up here, and then I do something with my other hand over here. Right? While you're looking up here, I get you to look in the wrong place. If you looked in the right place, there'd be no trick. You'd see everything happen. But if I can get you to look in the wrong place, then I can do all sorts of things and you'll be impressed, right? I think that's exactly what the enemy tries to do to us, right? The enemy says, here's what you ought to be looking at. Sometimes what he wants us to look at are really good things, right? He wants us to look at blessings and say, wow, these are pretty nice. Yeah, look at those. Boy, I hope God keeps these here. And actually, I feel kind of at home here. It's great to be in fellowship with people that I love and and a rich family life and there are many good blessings. And we start to think, boy, this is kind of nice here. Maybe this has never happened to you, but sometimes I've thought, you know, it's great that Jesus will return, but maybe not right now. 
because, you know, there's some neat things that are happening right now. I'd like to enjoy them a little bit more. Or, you know, I want to see some event in the future. And the enemy is saying, pay attention to this. Don't think about the promises. Pay attention to this, right? These are nice things. And sometimes for us as Americans, we start to think that God's kingdom is the USA. Right? Now, we don't say it, not in so many words, but we start to think this is what it's really about. And so we need to defend this territory. And don't get me wrong, I think we really ought to be a preserving influence in our country, but it's not ultimately about our country, right? It's about the kingdom that God has coming. We're still aliens, even though I carry an American passport, right? I am an alien here because the kingdom I ultimately belong to is there and not here. So that's one thing the enemy does is is gives us good things and says, pay attention to those instead of the promises of God. Sometimes he does it with challenging things like disease, like hardship, like discouragement, depression, all these other things. And he says, pay attention to these hard things instead of the promises of God. I'll think about the promises of God and the enemy says, but pay attention to the hard things. God's not doing it, right? And, And we think, well, if I were really following God, the hard things shouldn't be there. Peter says, in, in his first letter, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, right? The people started to think, we're Christians. God's on the throne. Jesus has total control. We shouldn't be going through fiery trials. He said, no, you're in enemy territory still. You aren't home yet. You're an alien. You're a stranger. This is no surprise, right? But rejoice when you share in Christ's suffering so that you can rejoice when his glory is revealed, when his kingdom comes, right? That's what we're looking toward. So I spend my time watching the misdirection of the enemy saying, pay attention to these things, not the promises of God. The people of faith said, I'm gonna trust in the revealed word of God, in his promises, in his declaration of the way things are, even when there are all these other things that distract me and make me think about other things. I look to the future, not to the misdirection about what is today because I'm not yet at home. But one day, one day we will be at home and it'll be an amazing thing and and we will enjoy all these blessings of God without restriction. So how do I read things like Psalm 103? I read them with a cautious optimism. Very often, God indeed gives us wonderful gifts here and he brings healing and very often that is the case. But I read it with a cautious optimism that says sometimes we die without that healing. Sometimes we go years without the rich sense of what we want in terms of just saying, I I love this great sense of peace in God. Sometimes we struggle for a long period of time. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but I also want to grow in having a bold joy that says, you know, that really is true that he heals all our diseases. We just can't see it yet, right? We're still living the effects of something that God has taken care of and it's all done. We just aren't enjoying the benefits of it fully yet. But one day, we will. One day without restriction, we will enjoy the city of God that he has created, that has a river flowing in it that brings gladness, right? That is in the presence of God and it'll be an amazing, unspeakable joy. And it says, the writer later says, Jesus, for that joy set before him, He put up with the pain. He put up with the shame because he says this isn't home yet. God is with us and his kingdom is growing and so I have some optimism but this is never really gonna be home. Home comes when he returns and there'll be an amazing wedding feast that we get to be a part of because he said it will happen.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the realism of your word. I thank you for the reality of people who wrestled to have faith when what they saw didn't line up with what you were saying. I thank you for the record of people who had great faith, of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and and the others. I thank you for people who are willing to accept what you said because you said it, who are willing to have a confidence in your word because you are faithful. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith. Protect us, Father, from being distracted by the things we see, by the things we experience firsthand, thinking that this is what it's really about. Father, help us not to look back to this world and thinking this is what we want to try to protect and preserve. We should take care of it because it's yours, but ultimately, what we're doing is looking forward to a heavenly city, to a city that has foundations that you have built that is run exactly as you design it. Father, thank you so much for the joy that is ours, for what stands before us. Father, help us to have greater faith, greater confidence in you as a God who is faithful even when my faith is weak. Thank you for your faithfulness. By your spirit, would you help us to have more faith in you because you are completely trustworthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll go enjoy in our God because he is faithful and he is good, amen.